Welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most. Because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady. I just, I knew there was something really wrong. Buckminster Fuller. Right. And he was like, but I didn't want to upset the power structure by uh, making them afraid of me. So every, all of my ideas were so pushed out into the future that they never felt threatened by me. And then he ended up becoming their darling golden boy. He's basically, he worked for multiple governments, you know, trying to help them develop their economy, you know, in a way that is like synergetic, you know. And he's had a, a massive impact, but he's saying things like that it's the composition of the whole that matters, the parts as a whole, and not just the single parts analyzed individually and trying to make them come together. And that it's spending your kind of cosmic savings account you have everything all around you, everything that you need, you know? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and with me today is Jay, my co-host, joining me. It's been Hello, a couple episodes you. since you've been here. How you doing, Jay? I know. I always edit. The, I feel like when I was editing, I was I heard, oh, I'm here by myself, no Jay. And then the next <laughs> one was like... I'm here by myself again. No, Jay. <laughs> right, right. One of them I did come in late, though, with, with Brad. Brad Olson, that's right. And you're here right on time for our very esteemed guest. Without further ado, you know him from the Green Knight podcast. His name is Birch Driver. He's been uh, famously seen on Zero recently. Sam has been really, really motivated and moved by what you taught him about the model of abundance and how they leverage the scarcity of life against us. So Birch, I'm excited to have you here. How are you today? I'm really good. Thanks a lot, Mark, for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. So remind everyone where they can find you right off the bat. Obviously the Green Knight podcast. Yeah www.greennight.green so it's dot green and uh 
series of podcasts that I'm continuing, but it's an exploration. So if you start from the beginning, you get the full factors, all the factors involved, and also my own discovery as I went through the process. So yeah, greennight.green. And it's about solution, solution, right? Not plural, just one solution. And that's what Bucky Fuller is talking about a lot too. And his uh, books, Synergetics, that he wrote in the early 70s, kind of lays it all out there. And right. Uh, yeah. Right. So obvious, I mean, that point that you just made about your podcast, about how it's a, a process, right? I think mm-hmm. that's true for for uh, a couple podcasts that are actually like ones I really enjoy when you see the progress over time. So, but I know, Birch, that didn't start there for you. When uh, in your life did you kind of realize that there was something more that you can seek out. Like when did this journey begin for you? Well, all since I was young, you know, I was always shooting for the moon, you know, always trying to achieve the impossible in a way, kind of, and expecting it to happen and trying to rally my cohorts to, you know, to come with, you know. And so it starts from when I was really young, but when I really kind of made this, started my path was when I went to an art center in Pasadena to learn to be an industrial designer. And that was after I already got a degree in physics. And so I was like shifting gears. So when I was at Art Center, I discovered the medium is the message by Marshall McLuhan. And that changed everything in a way because I was like, oh my God, someone finally is saying it in a way that makes sense to the way I see it in my mind. And McLuhan was right in there with Bucky. You know, they were uh, side by side doing their thing. And they had very similar uh, ideas about things, except Buckminster Fuller was, he's fully into technology. Whereas McLuhan was like, be ready for what technology brings, you know, you know what I mean? Right. So So, did I answer your question? Yeah, you're, you're getting there. (laughs) I think there's, there's more to it than that. So you're, you're talking uh, about coming across Marshall McLuhan's work and, and then you find Buckminster Fuller. For those who don't know, can you give us a little summary of who Buckminster Fuller is and and why maybe he had such a, he stood out to you at that age? Yeah, so he's saying things like that it's the composition of the whole that matters, the parts as a whole, and not just the single parts analyzed individually and trying to make them come together. That's his synergetics kind of thing. But could you ask the last part again? Sorry. No, and what? What about Buckminster Fuller like drew you to him at that age? Yeah, so <clears throat> he's just a radical thinker and going against the grain, you know, right. and also incorporating he's perhaps the last New England transcendentalist. I've heard him described in that way, which means that there's, you know, transcendentalists believe that there's something there's a component of life that transcends the physical, you know. And so he begins there and, and it's not like most scientists, you know, cause he's a science-based guy. He's a uh, design science is one of his terms that he talks about. And, but he's definitely like, he talks about God a lot about what God, how God has set it up, so to speak in a way, you know? Yeah. I actually um, have, I have a, a quote here from, a book by Robert Anton Wilson, where he's talking about Buckminster Fuller and something I pointed out, maybe we can expand on this says since 
Claude Shannon's A Mathematical Theory of Communication in 1948, Fuller has seen a basic link between these synergetic general principles and Shannon's definition of information. Shannon showed that information is an ordering of energy and therefore the mathematical reciprocal of entropy, which is the tendency of energy to grow disordered or chaotic. So I mean, what we're talking about here when we say design science, what that means to me is like, I think Buckminster Fuller was finding this sort of pattern, this mathematical pattern and realized that if he could design structures or invent certain items with these mathematical principles in mind, it, whatever he was building would be inherently better. And I think he was exploring some of that. Would you agree with that, Birch? Yeah, for sure. And when you're talking about uh, entropy, right, that's like the basic property or the tendency of the universe to fall into the state that requires the least energy to support, you know? So like the disordering of atoms in a solution, so to speak, you know? But he, what he was saying is that there's this counterbalance to entropy that is, comes from mind, right? And so it's like this entropic thing that only mind can develop. And that's why we're here. That was his uh, thinking basically is that's the reason that we're here is to create an entropic effect, you know, as opposed to a disintegrating effect. Right. Right. And, and, that and relates, yeah. And that relates to that whole uh, you know, scarcity thing. And he talks a lot about it. Like he pulls no punches in this book about who the culprits are, you know? Interesting. Well, let's get into he that. Lays it down hard. He lays it down hard. Now, who did Buckminster Fuller believe the culprits were? Well, it's great because the book starts with his speculative uh, history of man, where he basically rewrites history on his own prognostications. He used that word a lot, prognosticate, which is basically your own experience. You go inside doing your own discovery and you can discover the truth. You know, he was all about the truth. But so, yeah, the speculative history of the world, he goes all in on the Phoenicians, <laughs> you know, and in this, in the truth uh, seeking world, we all, we know all about how the Phoenicians were the ones who kind of, you know, from their headquarters in the Mediterranean, they ran the show, you know. Right. And it's funny you mentioned that because we just had a world traveler and adventurer, Brad Olson, on the show, who spent a a large portion of our conversation telling us much about the Phoenicians and how they actually were theorized to have gone down the St. John River into the Great Lakes, taking the copper out of that, you know, Great Lakes deposit up there. And then on their way down back to the Mediterranean, they would go through the lakes past Chicago, where there's archaeological evidence of a a sort of kind of head-shaped bowl where they would sacrifice certain things, a human infant potentially, in this bowl for kind of like their religion to grant them safe passage down the Mississippi, because in those times it was very dangerous. Obviously, the Mississippi River is full of life. There's probably many, many different groups of people they would have to go past to get to the Gulf of Mexico and then go around Florida and then up back to the Mediterranean. And there's evidence, too, in Florida of the Phoenicians. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really 
interesting, this group of people. And then as history usually uh, does, trying to rewrite itself, we find that there were two groups of people known as the Phoenicians. Is there any discrimination there when it comes to what Buckminster Fuller thought? Did he have any thoughts on like the different groups of people? Because I've I, maybe I'm misunderstanding this, but I believe there was a Phoenician group that was contemporary to Greece, but then there was a much earlier, older Phoenician group that existed possibly since antediluvian times. Yes, yes. And that's exactly what Bucky goes into. He talks about how it's, well, first you mentioned copper. I'll just, a quick aside, it's kind of after this discussion, but it's like copper and tin make bronze, right? And so they ascribe, historians uh, in the standard model ascribe the uh, Bronze Age erupting from Crete because there was a copper mine there. And Crete was also, you know, a, a headquarters for the Phoenicians. But he says, though, that you re it requires tin, right? So you got to have copper and tin. And Crete, there's no tin mine, right? So he was basically saying that, and this relates to what you were previously talking about, is this previous version. He's saying that the most critical technology that accelerated the development of technology was boat technology, boat, boat culture. You know, and the Phoenicians are the boat people, right? They're described as the boat people. And so if you push it all the way back into prehistory, we find the people using boats first were in like Southeast Asia and they floated all around the globe, right? Just on the currents and made it everywhere. And as this was happening, they developed this technology that ended up you know, culminating in the Hellenistic times with these giant ribbed boats, you know, that basically changed the structure of uh, world power at that time, you know, when Troy fell, basically. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we can see over the past 500 years how the nations that had the biggest navies and armadas, either the United Kingdom, the Royal Kingdom of England, they controlled the world. They had the largest Navy. And then as technology developed, that kind of, it's still important. I mean, the United States has the largest Navy, and that's definitely something we hear is one of the big reasons why we're so formidable in the world stage, you know, yeah. but it, there's truth there that the oceans are the oldest form of travel. They're these yes. ancient, ancient cultures that have deep, deep knowledge of how to navigate the seas. Yeah, and so about those currents, I have a picture of the, can I share a screen here? Or? Absolutely, yeah. yeah, I just need to ahead. allow it with the settings here. Go for it. So All right. this is the Dymaxion map <laughs> that uh, Fuller invented. Wow. Got a pattern. Oh, shoot, sorry. So it's a, Basically, it's a non-distorted, all the continents are actual, right? They're not distorted based on the pro different projections that people use to make maps. And uh, I'm trying to make it bigger here. Hold on. Wow, that's very interesting. It looks like a, for the audio listeners, please subscribe to the Patreon and check out the the picture here because it is hard to describe. It's like a polygon that doesn't have one fair side. And then... Yeah, look at that. And then in the center, it's like all the continents, but it's like looking at the world from the North Pole bird's eye perspective. And it seems like there wouldn't be like anywhere. I mean, those spots that aren't filled in, are is that ocean or is that just like doesn't exist in his opinion? Because we're um, probably getting a lot of flat earthers really excited yeah, right? right now. Oh, so yeah, he talks a lot about, it's on to, hold on, I got to stop the... 
That's fine. We're not married to the ball on this podcast. We can entertain any earth shape on this podcast. So he talks a lot about the, you know, the psychological consequences of of seeing your surroundings as a plane. Okay. (laughs) And so he was all about spheral spherical interactions and so another reason that i really like bucky is because he uh, brings in the seven principles of hermeticism (laughs) absolutely something that our audience should be a little familiar with the kybalion the book that holds the seven hermetic principles is something that's pretty uh near and dear to my own story and how i got where i'm at right now so he will talk about this map a little bit more, but he basically says, you know, he talks about the principle of polarity and the principle of rhythm and how that they're always in interplay, right? And this is the ever unfolding of the universe. Just the way it works is that it's infinitely efficient. There's always, it's economical, so to speak, and it doesn't have to stop and think about what to do. It just does, you know, and it's always this exchange of energy back and forth, this rhythmic cycle. And so that's what a large part of Bucky's message is, is that we have to get back on that natural cycle, get in congruence with nature. And, and this whole thing is, is that we have to use technology to do it. And we can't not use technology to do it, (laughs) you know? Absolutely. And technology is, is, is something that they were talking about later on in that book I read from and so one of the definitions for technology is you know organized information it's not just like a computer or a hammer or you know technology is anything that the mind creates to kind of fit into this interaction between the mind and the rest of the world around it yes and so yeah he did this you know 50 year long process of like he saw the problems and he's like i'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to make things happen in order to so that he calls it the critical path he's like it's like a critical path is basically you have critical he talks about the same thing that i've been talking about which is basically we have the choice of annihilation or this transformation that is possible you know right Yeah. And I don't think he was aware of the idea of what we have happening now, which is this like stasis box they want to put us in, you know, it's not annihilation, but it's not evolution, you know? Right. Yeah. And for those who aren't seeing this Dymaxian sky ocean world map, it's very, very interesting how the dragon's triangle is not there and then kind of the bermuda triangle is i guess but that part of the world is also kind of not filled in on this map have you have you does the the ley lines of the earth fit into bucky's theories at all yeah it does but they would be bent i think in this model you know what i mean Okay. For some reason, when you go from sphere to flat, the whole purpose of this is to remove the distortion when you try to do that, you know. But now, when when you say that he encouraged spherical thinking, what what do you mean by that? I, I know you didn't phrase it that way, but that's kind of how I'm remembering. <laughs> yeah. Um, so because it seems like he, you know, he built this geodesic. D- dome right that's kind of a sphere shape it's like a a flat planes organized into a sphere shape but that 
this map, I mean, maybe I'm just missing the point here, but it seems to me like he's presenting a flat version of the world, but he himself was very interested in the nature of spheres. So did he, you know, without getting too far on the globe shape stuff, did he actually believe in a flat earth? Is that what this suggests? No, or no? actually, no, not, not at all. Um, okay. So I did have a misunderstanding there. I apologize, yeah. audience. No, but it, it is an important distinction of how you go from 3 to 2D and what okay. you lose when you do that. And also how you go from 2D to 3D is right. you take a flat piece of paper and you fold it and suddenly that's three dimensions now where before it was just two right right and so that's what this is and when you fold this into when you assemble it it creates an isosahedron which is a 20-sided shape you know wow okay and now i understand why we're seeing these kind of triangular patterns yes. here overall it's because it's almost like one of those, I don't know if it's even like a common toy, but I, I remember finding a toy that operates just like this. It's like a sphere and then you unfold it and it's this crazy, weird, you know, triangle shape. Yeah. When I was teaching math and science to high school students, I would start them with this exercise, you know, where they would have to basically fold the platonic solids from flat, you know? Right. <clears throat> Wow. But uh, about this map, though, so he was talking about how down here is where, like in Micronesia, maybe, is where humans are best suited just to survive, you know, without any equipment, you know? Interesting. And so if you look at the map in this way, you can see how it's like you could just ride the currents on a raft and go and circumnavigate, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then after thousands of years of developing technology and he goes into like how trigonometry must have been developed you know it's like then you need to develop a math and you got to have all of this and you need brass <laughs> you need brass fittings because they do not rust you know so you can see how he might have an angle on this one like uh, about where this original force multiplying comes from you know using technology Wow. And now that's something that we really need to highlight because it's dawning on me the real significance of brass now that you said that, because previously I thought like, okay, Bronze Age, you know, whatever they used to fight people, shields, swords, right? That's what you picture they're making. But when you realize like, no, 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 this metal is absolutely essential to traveling around the ocean it makes so much sense it's like they have to travel with what they have you know wood to get more resources so the better ship you can have the more resources you can essentially theoretically get yeah and it, it's a compounding effect like it, it seems like it builds on itself because the, the better you get at making your boat, the more you are likely to put yourself in a hazardous situation, <laughs> you right. know? And so, and then again, it's like, gets the mind working. It's like, how can I solve this problem now? You know? Right, right. <laughs> yeah, very, very curious how things like sea travel and flight, yes, they're costly, but there's like this, there's this air of like kind of mystery around these things, you know, like, Typically, people who learn to fly or captain a ship, they're doing it for a career or military or whatnot. But there is this just like human, innate human desire to travel in that way and really explore the world past, you know, what your feet yeah. or a horse can bring you. Yeah. 
And uh, that's something about that he talks about a lot too. And one of his inventions, he started out trying to do in, inexpensive housing that is portable, like in his 20s. And so he was born in 1895. Wow. He's one of the most, he's probably one of the most influential thinkers of the 20th century. But his first big project was, you know, trying to build housing for the poor. <laughs> And he lost his shirt real bad, was broke. So, but his, one of his big inventions was the Dymaxian home, Dymaxian home. And so he made up a lot of his own words and Dymaxian was one of the things that he coined and it's dynamic maximum tension all put together. And uh, that relates to his theory of structure, uh, you know, his architecture, which is the, the buckyball, you know, the geodesic don't. Yeah, the geodesic dome is one of his, what he's most famous for, right? But it, he called it the vector equilibrium. Wow, okay. Because each spar is pulling and pushing an equal amount all around the whole surface, right? Fantastic, yeah. So it's the balance of this tension and compression again, right? And so then it's this rhythm and rhythm of the balance of the poles, right? And so everything that he makes has this built into it. But what I was getting at is like this like Dymaxian house that he designed, which is like almost a trailer. We should take a look at it, maybe. Yeah, please but, share uh, your screen again. I didn't mean uh, to uh, cancel it. I just thought no, there uh, might have been a lag. Go ahead, Jay. No, just canceling our guest stream like that, Mark. <laughs> That's cool. But anyway, it's like he was all about mobility and he built in this little tiny house, like all of the shells where they fold out, everything was like had its place, but he built a room that, he, that was a map room, right? And he was like, this is how you plan your next adventure. You know, it was like a dedicated room just for navigation, <laughs> you know? Wow. And he was in the Navy and was uh, a radio operator and was fascinated by all that stuff. And now you see this tiny house movement kind of like burgeoning, maybe not so much yeah. in the past year. I haven't heard much about it, but yeah, I think a lot of people are taking this kind of DIY approach to live outside of society's means. And Bucky was really like somebody. Sorry, loud truck driving by. Bucky was somebody who was really a renegade, like a, a early starter at this, you yeah. know, like, yeah, like you were really saying, sure. he really innovated so much. And now I think people can learn a lot even, and it's, it's, it seems open source approachable in the sense of like, he put this information out there for other people to pick up and, and follow his lead. There's not a lot of like, you know, jargon or, or coded language in his books or writings. Yeah. And exactly. I think he said once that everything I've done is for everyone else. Right. right. And also he decided earlier on, it's like the, after he lost his shirt, right. He may have this big transformation, like this big epiphany moment and other things in his life were happening. Like he was having a super hard time, you know, and he just decided that he was going to only operate on experience, you know, and he wasn't going to take anyone's word for it. And that he was just going to do everything he could in his life to benefit others. And that he discovered, actually, he at that day, that day, he started writing in a journal that he called it like some kind of Dymaxian Chronicle or something like that. <laughs> but he wrote every day in that thing. And he's got like, I don't know, a mile of paper, basically, everything that he did since 1927, you know? Wow. And so he was writing, he decided 
that he would he was going to become an experiment and he called it experiment b or subject b and it b stands for bucky and he was like it's like i'm just gonna everything i do is going to be for other people and i'm going to see how much impact one individual can have if they do that every moment that they have in their life <laughs> wow yeah that reminds me of something like tony robbins said when i was listening to something earlier it's like you know the people around you are you know gravitating towards you based on the frequency you're putting out so like if you start thinking and acting and changing your life for the better it's going to have a positive effect on the people around you and with characters like buckminster fuller who put their heart and soul into this work and then publish it and put it out there for people that they don't even know you know to find one day like yourself it's really a profound thing to to be a part of yeah and so yeah when he was beginning he was like i just I knew there was something really wrong, right? And he was like, but I didn't want to upset the power structure by uh, making them afraid of me. So every, all of my ideas were so pushed out into the future that they never felt threatened by me. And then he ended up becoming their darling golden boy. He's basically, he worked for multiple governments, you know, trying to help them develop their economy, you know, in a way that is like synergetic, you know, and he's had a, a massive impact. But I think this book that he wrote, he was 80, 83 at the time, I think, in 1980 when it was published. And he's basically chronicling the effect that he did have, but also noting that we still aren't, we haven't made enough progress or we aren't even trying really. You know, it's like some of his ideas are kind of implemented. A lot of his thinking is like being used right now. Like he has this whole diatribe about stay at home, <laughs> you know, like why do you got to be driving everywhere? You know, I but, mean, yeah. What can we go into that a little more? What's yeah, Mark, let's go into that? that a little more. Because <laughs> Jay Jay knows me as somebody who will just get in the car and spend the whole day in the car and have love no that. plan, you know, and love the whole day, you know. And I maybe to a fault am very spontaneous in that way because my car has some transmission issues right now. But <laughs> what 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 did Bucky say about staying at home? Well, he with one of his associates, they figured out that the actual cost of fossil fuels per gallon in actual life support, you know, cosmic value is a million dollars a gallon. <laughs> so it's a, it's a, it's a no value action where you're taking yeah. something, the, the, the physical action of driving is actually having a, a negative overall effect on your reality so to speak uh, yeah and that it's spending your kind of cosmic savings account when you have everything all around you everything that you need you know right but the amount it's almost like i when i read that i was like oh this is like amazon it's like they make it so that you lose money so hard um, in the first several years, but the value is so high to the customer because the prices are so low because it's been subsidized in some way or some or another, you know, that eventually you have a behemoth institution, right? That is selling you shite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as a, as somebody who actually makes things, you probably, is that what you're saying when you're, you're trying to sell things on Amazon, you don't really get a good fair wage, but everybody thinks they're getting a good deal because yeah. they're getting such a low price. Yeah. And then you're left with no other choice because of that uh, dynamic that's created. 
Yeah, and they, he just took such a hit in the first years of that company, and it was all designed that way so that ah, it, would I see what you're it, would, it would create this like explosion of you know of yeah. profit. Well, there's and also that's some. Why, that's why I looked at the gas thing. Is like, how could they justify you know the the expenditure that it costs to actually extract, right? Mm. And not to mention just that, but everything else, just to you know for everyone to be driving around, you know, like all willy nilly. Yeah, no, it does make you think. I mean, I certainly would love to be driving a Tesla, you know, car, not the new Tesla, but like the real old school one that ran on a radio like Nikola Tesla invented. That would be great if we could bring that back. I I remember, I think it was this guy who's very fascinated with hollow earth, Brooks Agnew. Have you heard of him? I believe he actually owns an electric car company. It was some year, a couple of years ago now. I don't know where their progress is on that, but he is somebody who I remember being inspired by Buckminster Fuller. So what what's so interesting about this type of work is like these guys often work kind of with little notice until after their life is over, after their life work is over. And I think they're, you know, we it would be surprising to know that there are probably a lot of people working on, you know, cleaner solutions for this uh, traveling. Because I don't think people are going to want to stop traveling, Birch, quite honestly. I know. And he was not, uh, he was not about that. He was just saying that this fossil fuel thing is absurd. Right. We have enough energy to be fully mobile, you know, and fully free and not have to, you know, pay that kind of cost. You know? Now, he was sort of contemporary to Tesla, maybe much younger than him. Uh, did he ever mention Tesla at all that, you know, I mean, that might be an obscure question. Yeah, I mean, uh, not in this book. And this is his life, life's work. But he also didn't mention other people that were saying the same stuff as him. Interesting. And, and also, he really isn't the inventor of the geodesic dome. He's okay. just holding the American patent on it. 26 years previous, a German guy invented it. And he okay. never mentions that either, you know. And he rarely mentions his collaborators, <laughs> you know. So it's almost like this experiment is like he's really holding to it. It's like one individual. How much can one individual do? This is an experiment. And how much of an impact can it have, you know. Wow. And so... If you want to share again along those lines. So again, like I think his book he's writing, he's like, I did so much and I put my heart and soul into it, but it's not enough. You know, it's like, we all got to do this together. And this is the graph of his mention in publications (laughs) since 1920. So Right. So his impact is massive. Everyone's referencing him, you know, all the way up to 1980, you know, and in the 60s and 70s was his heyday for sure. And but it's almost like Generation X, which is my gen. We forgot. I had to rediscover these guys. They were like in the front. They were in the limelight pretty much, you know, McLuhan, Bucky and these other guys, these futurist guys with these radical ideas. And then all of a sudden they just disappeared kind of, you know. And what Bucky wanted to do in 1989 was to have this worldwide compendium on like how we uh, manage spaceship Earth, you know, like how we actually do it. And he wrote this book in 80 and was like, by 2000, we got to have all this shit in place. (laughs) And none of it's there, you know, none of it is there. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like he really studied the data and he thought about like, how do you make it work for all the people? And that was his quote. He was like, we have the technology now to make a better standard of living living for all people higher than has ever been known, basically. 
previously for all people. And he was like, we just need people to realize that we have 4 billion billionaires, right? Walking around on earth, 4 billion, right? That was 40 years ago. Now we have double that, right? <laughs> and really it's, they've only given him lip service, so to speak, like pat him on the back and, you know, talk about the dome and how cool it is and stuff, but really not talk, you know, not really taking into account really what he wanted to happen, which is this full world accounting, you know, and you guys have heard of the Venus project, right? Yeah. Yeah, I have. So that guy, Jacques, what's his last name? Jacques. Yeah. So he's very similar to Buckminster Fuller and has a similar story. He's not as he's younger. He was born later, but basically saying world accounting, we got to account for all the resources and we got to use our technology to manage it right. Because there actually isn't a uh, scarcity, but there's been an engineered scarcity, right? So now we have the technology to, to, to actually uh, take care of everyone, but at the expense of it putting us in the position where it's absolutely necessary that it happens now, <laughs> you know? You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. And, and what you're saying, it sounds like, you know, what's been going on in global politics is like this push to drive this narrative of fear uh, and this impending global cataclysm, which if you ask certain people like Randall Carlson, who funny enough also is very interested in Buckminster Fuller's work. I think he was one of the first people I ever heard mention uh, Bucky's name and he cites you know that we're going through a kind of we're coming out of a little ice age so it's like yeah of course they're getting a little warmer but you know it was far warmer at this point in history and far warmer and i'm not someone who's gonna go and say argue for the carbon dating i'm not someone who can really speak on that but i trust randall at his word and and i think that it is a lot of hype that the government is trying to push on us in order to impose things like the uh you know paris climate accord and their carbon credit system i mean these are all things that are much much discussed within the conspiracy community we don't need to go too far into that because we're more about solutions and overcoming the matrix on this podcast but yeah it's it's just funny how you know the world's fair and this like drive to like create this futurism that we saw in the 50s and and now you know i had chris knowles on the podcast episode 816 i believe i love him yeah chris knowles is great one of the things he really chimed in on and mentioned to us a bunch is like hey you know like i'm a lot older than you guys like trust me like these things and this was pre-january i think so you know it was while all this kind of chaos was going on about the election he's like listen this has all happened before you know these people who say that we're in a new global technological this and that you know one of the points that he really drove home was like yeah they just make all these promises in order to get the funding to do these projects but the projects deliver little results yeah yeah they just have nice packaging on it you know right Um, the right words and stuff right and they and they use right, guys like Bucky or at least the facade of guys like Bucky and like a character like Tesla to give us the uh, idea that progress is going on. But really, it's just a facade. Yeah. I mean, can't even say controlled opposition anymore because it's overused, <laughs> overused. 
But, you know, to your point, Fuller was fully with this, the idea of what you were just talking about, which is that they kind of shift blame from the corporate structured, you know, the pollution of our planet and all the waste and all that stuff to us, you know, right. and, and make it about we have to change our lives in order to, you know, save us all, you know. And so Bucky was, he was a conservationist or he was the first green architect, I guess you could say, because he was all about doing more with less, you know, that was his whole thing. He said it all the time, but he said, he was like, yeah, the government is leveraging, you know, they are basically making shit up in order to blame the public for the pollution, you know, right. this is what Bucky said. And he actually talked about it, the LA smog problem. And he was like, it was the oil refineries. It was the oil refineries. And they shut down over Christmas. Here's the proof. They, the oil refineries shut down over Christmas. So by New Year's Day, by the time there's a Rose Bowl happening, it's beautiful fucking day in Southern California, you know? And he's like, it's obvious because they fucking shut down the refineries. But then they, they blamed the, the cars, you know? And, you know, catalytic converters, right? Somebody made trillions of dollars off of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Now they're being stolen at large from people's cars all over the Apparently. place. Because yeah, you can get the raw materials out of them, right? Yeah. That's another thing Bucky talked about. But yeah, so he was definitely, he was like on board with that. He was like, there's a lot of chicanery going on, you know? Great word. And so he, you'd be surprised to find that Bucky would be able to sit in with us and roll with everything that we talk about you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, for those who don't know, he was a member of many, many, many different academic organizations. I mean, the guy's resume is pretty long. He is like uh, Birch mentioned, you know, a consultant for world governments all over, you know, several different continents. So he, he definitely, you know, was a Renaissance man in a sense. Yeah. And so he talks about that too, is, and that's something that McLuhan talks about too, is that that we're all specialists, right? And so that we are unable to actually make sense of other people's things that they are specialized in. It's like, and that shit happens so hard right now. And he would be so pissed, right? When people say, stay in your lane, you know? And he was a generalist. He was all about being a generalist. He was like, being a specialist is a liability. Yeah, yeah, or a universalist rather. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. He would like that. But yeah, I mean, I have some clips we could play if you guys want, or we could continue to talk about his various things that he let's, was into. Let's try a clip. I don't know how well it's going to come through. If it, if it starts lagging, we might just pass on it okay. uh, until maybe we'll have you back when I have a better connection. But, you know, just based on the connection of the video right now, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to test it. Let's give it All a try. Right. I'm not looking, am I pixelating or what? No, but you know, it, it's, it might just be our interaction and not the way the recording looks. So it's not that big of a deal. And plus we're primarily audio. So it's not, not a big deal. If there's audio to the clip, bravo, that's even better. Yeah, that's uh, it's just audio. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Let's see if it works. So you were talking about his interest in spheres. And so this is the first page of the book. This is what he says. And so let's see if it comes through. Did you, when you shared your screen, click optimize for video and allow sound? No. 
advanced. When you click share screen, it should ask you before you get to share your screen what screen you're actually sharing. And then there'll be a little checkbox underneath that says like allow sound to play. There you go. So yeah, this is his description of synergetics basically, right? And you gotta like open your mind to hear the words that he uses. He made up words and he also does run on sentences and you gotta be, make yourself available to the images that it creates. But we can talk about what he says after. Excellent. Conventional critical path conceptioning is linear and self under informative. Only spherically expanding and contracting, spinning, polarly involuting and evoluting orbital system feedbacks are both comprehensively and incisively informative. Spherical, orbital, critical feedback circuits are pulsative, tidal, importing, and exporting. Critical path elements are not overlapping linear modules in a plane. They are systemically interspiraling complexes of omni-interrelevant regenerative feedback circuits. Synerg omni omni interrelevant feedback circuits. Omni interrelevant feedback circuits. Wow, okay. Let's get into that. What can you describe that in more depth? Yeah. So what he's saying is like how we align our path to nature's path and to use these polar relationships that are always in play with each other instead of these rigid structures that we are kind of adhered to at this point. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, on this next one. So in the beginning of this book, he does an introduction. And I want to play for you the, he references E.E. E. Cummings, a letter that he wrote, or it might be a poem, but it's basically talking about how he, it's how he founds his philosophy, basically, of life. And E.E. E. Cummings, they knew each other, and so he was a big impact on his life. It sound easy. It isn't. A lot of people think or believe, or know they feel. Wait, hold on there. A, a poet's advice. A poet is somebody who feels, and who expresses his feelings through words. This may sound easy. It isn't. A lot of people think, or believe, or know they feel. But that's thinking, or believing, or knowing, not feeling. And poetry is feeling, not knowing, or believing, or thinking. Almost anybody can learn to think or believe or know, but not a single human being can be taught to feel. Why? Because whenever you think or you believe or you know, you're a lot of other people. But the moment you feel, you're nobody but yourself. To be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make you everybody else means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. As for expressing nobody but yourself in words, that means working just a little harder than anybody who isn't a poet can possibly imagine. Why? Because nothing is quite as easy as using words like somebody else. We, all of us, do exactly this nearly all of the time. And whenever we do it, we are not poets. If, at the end of your first 10 or 15 years of fighting and working and feeling, you find you've written one line of one poem, You'll be very lucky indeed. And so my advice to all young people who wish to become poets is, do something easy, like learning how to blow up the world, 
unless you're not only willing but glad to feel and work and fight till you die. Does this sound dismal? It isn't. It's the most wonderful life on earth. Or so I feel. E. Cummings. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm moved. I hope the listeners are. I mean, that just that understanding of what poetry is kind of shocked me in a really beautiful way. Yeah. And so Bucky was like, I'm not going to think like a scientist. It's design science. I'm going to apply the thinking of poets and artists to the development of our world culture. Wow. Yeah. And I think, you know, whether he lived to see it or not, the internet is giving way for that sort of interaction to take place. I mean, like never before people are able to collaborate and things are being built that couldn't have even been imagined by him because cyberspace wasn't available. Yeah. And that's his main thing is like, he was like, we got to build the artifacts that allow us to live in a way that isn't congruent with nature. He's like, it's all about the artifacts. We got to create the artifacts, you know, and that's the critical path. That's what this is all about. And so, but I think that Bucky, it's like the whole reason we have the technology that we can use to save ourselves is because we've been fucking ourselves with it for thousands of years, you know? (laughs) Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think the the biggest uh, mistake that science has made over the past hundred years is forgetting the spiritual or energetic aspect of the world, at least on a commercialized and industrial level. It seems to me like that is scoffed at any sort of idea or notion that energy somehow is the foundation of all life rather than, you know, physical matter. Yeah. Or consciousness rather than just energy. I think energy is a confusing word because there's a materialist explanation for energy. I mean, consciousness. Yeah. So we should play this section where he talks about good and bad. All right. So here it comes. Introduction. Twilight. The world. Wrong section. It's all right. We had it here. It is the author's working assumption that the words good and bad are meaningless. This is based on science and not on opinion. In 1922, physicists discovered a fundamental complementarity of disparate individual phenomena to be operative in physical universe. This was fundamentally amplified with the subsequent discovery of the always and only different, always coexisting, proton and neutron, which, with their always coexistent electrons, positrons, neutrinos and antineutrinos, are eternally intertransformable no longer was valid the building block of the universe. It was discovered that unity was plural and at minimum sixfold. All the intercomplementations are essential to the successful accomplishment of eternally regenerative universe. Science's discovery of fundamental complementarity has frequently occasioned individual scientists' realization that the word negative, used as the opposite of the word positive, is at best carelessly and misinformedly employed. Since complementarity is essential to the success of eternally regenerative universe, the phenomenon identified as the opposite of positive cannot be negative, nor can it be bad, since the interopposed phenomena known heretofore as good and bad are essential to the 100% success of eternally regenerative universe. They are both good 
for the universe. Wow. Any thoughts on that one? Yeah, a lot. I'm curious <laughs> to know what you think. Yeah, so there is no good and bad in nature. This is just, you know, the inner relation of polarities again, you know? this is what he's talking about is that when you look at the universe you're not going to find evil you know you're just going to find the rhythmic interplay between polar relationships hence the seven hermetic laws the principle of polarity the principle of rhythm right and yeah even the principle of gender kind of explains that because oftentimes people do cite that as like you know polarity but no i think gender and polarity are different well, I mean, they both can exist without each other. They have that aspect in, in common for sure. You know, they come into existence together. And Bucky talks about that a lot too, is like how, I think this is kind of what he's getting at here in a way, is that everything, all polarities enter into existence at once. And so you can't really even really say there's a beginning or an end to something, you know? Wow. Yeah, and, and even like, you know, the idea of gender, like you get into like plants versus, you know, you know, the sexual, asexual, it's like, well, there's balance there. There's polarity there. You know, you would think like, okay, well, there's male and the female, but what's the opposite of that? Well, like a fungus or, you know, some of these other creatures that, you know, don't require a mate to reproduce, you know, like the, the life, these laws are expressed through the, nature from the smallest organism to the largest organism you know it's it's really amazing when you when you see the world through this lens you notice the connections yeah and so you could also describe it in a different way where maybe so a fungus perhaps doesn't is you we you know to our eyes we can't see a male female but maybe that these interactions on a on an invisible scale have you know an interlocking one puzzle piece fits the other kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, Um, I mean, that's exactly the kind of approach we should take from the more spiritual consciousness perspective. Yeah. I think there's way more value in pointing that out than what I pointed out for sure. (laughs) But then there's also the something that Bucky talks about too, which is this transverse effect where if you have an action, there's something that happens 90 degrees at a, at a 90 degree angle to it. Right. For example, if you throw a pebble in a pond, right, then the waves go out at 90 degrees from the entry to the pond, you know? Yeah. And he talks about that with his purpose in life. He was like, if I point myself at serving others, then I will be served, you know? So if I do this action this way, then 90 degrees polarity will ensure that I am taken care of. Right. (laughs) Yeah, and, and that, you know, that like, reminds... bees work too. He was like, that's his example for it. It's like, bees don't go out intending to pollinate, you know, but they do. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, like attracts like, and, you know, when you serve others, the universe serves you, you know? And, and yeah, that reminds me of something that I learned really early on from a friend, the first person that ever gave me a, a crystal, you know, she was much older than me. And she told me like, Hey, you know, there's times where I was homeless. I'm like, really you homeless? Like, you don't look like you are ever homeless, you know? And she's like, well, I had faith in God. I prayed that, you know, I would always have somewhere to have a meal and it, it just, it always worked out. 
And I think that's kind of the point is like, she was a good natured person. So the universe carved that path out for her, despite, you know, the lack of material possessions that might've enabled her to have the ability to get her own meals. Yeah. And I mean, that's the surrender aspect, you know, right. right? Stop trying to control everything. But yeah. Bucky was all about controlling the general properties of nature, you know, and that if you can scientifically generalize a property, right, then that's nature speaking to you is what he was saying, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, Um, and that's, that's something that has always been a big part of my life is like, always been just innately fascinated with nature. I had Lindsay Sharman on the podcast today earlier, and she mentioned the same thing. And I think when you start to talk to like-minded folks in this community, that's a big theme is like having a close connection to nature. Like not like you don't have to like have a pet wolf or something crazy like that, but like just, you know, having a space to go to, to collect your thoughts that's, you know, forested. It's extremely healthy. Yeah, it's just a really natural thing. I think it's really underestimated uh, in our modern life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's where you the the rhythm touches you when you go into nature. You know, you can't avoid it. Right. So, do we have another audio clip here, or so we can talk about how? He's like, it's the twilight of the power structures, right? And then there's a few more clips that relate to that like he talks about you're either making money or you're making sense that's one of his quotes <laughs> I like that <laughs> yeah i think that's uh that's true hey folks if you think we make sense help us make some money sign up for the patreon oh yeah. nice, Mark. nice. <laughs> and then yeah and then you get all the extra stuff so here's yeah, talking about the twilight of the power structures. Introduction, twilight of the world's power structures. Humanity is moving ever deeper into crisis, a crisis without precedent. First, it is a crisis brought about by cosmic evolution irrevocably intent upon completely transforming omni-disintegrated humanity from a complex of around the world, remotely deployed from one another, differently colored, differently credoed, differently cultured, differently communicating, and differently competing entities into a completely integrated, comprehensively interconsiderate, harmonious whole. Second, we are in an unprecedented crisis because cosmic evolution is also irrevocably intent upon making omni-integrated humanity omni-successful, able to live sustainingly at an unprecedentedly higher standard of living for all Earthians than has ever been experienced by any, able to live entirely within its cosmic energy income instead of spending its cosmic energy savings account, the fossil fuels, or spending its cosmic capital plant and equipment account, atomic energy, the atoms with which our spaceship Earth and its biosphere are structured and equipped, a spending folly no less illogical than burning your house and home to keep the family warm on an unprecedentedly cold midwinter night. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so it burn, burn your house down. <laughs> well, that's kind of like what you were talking about previously, you know, with this kind of 
total energy that we need to understand. Like when you look at the earth's total resource value, it's something that needs to be maintained because the whole of nature functions with this symbiotic principle that the seven hermetic laws kind of describe. And you see that symbiosis in nature and we need to be able to function within that rather than function at the behest of that. Yeah, because we'll get slapped down, you know. I mean, there will become a hard blow. It's almost like we delay the blow until it becomes um, a massive death blow, you know. Right. <laughs> Maybe that's why they're putting the gas prices up every time the government or the White House is uh, blue. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, I mean, yeah, the, he was uh, kind of firmly linked in the standard model, except that he rewrote like that thing about the Phoenicians is pretty good in the boat people. I like that. But uh, he, uh, he wasn't, you know, it's like as far as like archaeology and the origin of humans, he was going with the leaky model, the Lewis leaky model, you know, the out of Africa. Right. And it's just, there wasn't enough information in 80 really yet, you know, for right. him to update his viewpoint. But I wonder what he would think about the idea of something I've been working on which is that evil is an invention. <laughs> Very interesting. Can you go into that further? Because somebody that I'm close with, that I work with often on a weekly basis, Alex Securis, he is the author of a book, Why Evil Matters. You guys might actually have a great conversation. Uh, maybe we could talk about that after the show, but get into that a little bit more. Yeah. So I have this on episode 12. I, I go into it basically on, on Green Knight. Okay, I'll be sure to send that to him. And uh, what I go into is, so what I first talk about in episode 11 is how the price of money, like if we, when we sell money, when you make money from money, it creates a cyclic system that has to crash, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so you create all of this suffering and mayhem and death that is artificial, that is due to the system, you know, that wouldn't have happened if we all weren't operating in this financial system. You know, mm. and so it's, I, I basically lay it out is like that in order for money, the price of money in order for it to the price of money to be uh, managed, right. Then the supply has to be managed, right. The supply right. of money. And uh, so whoever owns the supply is the one who sets the price offering, right. <laughs> right. This is basic supply and demand. Right. And so what I'm getting at is, is that what makes money valuable is actually the scarcity of it, you know? Mm, right. Right. And, and so that makes the offer for the sale of money more, more attractive. Right. Absolutely. So when the supply is going down, that means that there's less around, right? And so that this offer is possibly the only one that it, you're going to get, <laughs> you know? You know what I'm saying? So it's like an offer. Yeah. I'm just basically laying out that there's, there's some kind of offer for us to accept in order to participate in society and we have to accept the offer and then we pay the price for it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so what I'm saying out is that they, this is the leveraging... Uh, death against life idea, right? Is that when there's death present, it makes that offer more attractive, right? right. Because they're going to offer life at a cost, right? 
And so that's basically my argument. I just throw that thing all the way back to the beginning of civilization. Perhaps when we left the Garden of Eden, right? And we ate from the fruit of, of knowledge, right? And it says knowledge of good and evil, but it's really just knowledge, right? So what I'm saying is, is that civilization, it was kind of an offer for us. We didn't get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. We were made an offer and then left nature for civilization. And what makes the offer attractive is evil, is actually th bad things happening because then you need the protection of the city walls and the militia, you know, or the, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And so basically evil is actually what drives civilization because it, instead of a natural rhythm, we have a hypnotic rhythm of inferior virtue, which is good, right? Which is just a response to evil. Anti-evil is not good, right? And so what I'm saying is, is that this hypnotic response to bad things happening, right? Kind of drives the wheel of civilization forward. Right. Yeah, so, no, they create, they create this fear and you see it in the modern day, you see it throughout history, but keep going. I interjected. Yeah. <clears throat> so basically it's like, that's what makes it attractive. It's like, we need evil in order for civilization's wheels to keep rolling, you know, for the paid protection to be of value. Right. Right. I mean, cause government is basically just like, you know, organized crime. It's just paid protection. If you want to bring it down to that level, that's basically what it is. You know, and so how, why are you going to pay for protection if there's nothing to be protected from, you yeah. know? <laughs> so that's what I'm saying is like, basically we could vanquish evil and return to uh, nature basically, because in that scenario, this jockeying for position or this mechanical advantage that people in power use over um, the masses is, would be ineffective. Like we would just basically remove the leverage. <laughs> yes, because the natural laws are universal and omnipotent and the laws of man just do not stand up to the test of time. And in fact, they create a detrimental situation for us consciously. I mean, this is this is profound stuff. I think I think Alex would definitely enjoy speaking to you about this because yeah, his book kind of touches on some of the same themes and maybe you guys can find a, a point of agreement, but yeah, it's definitely something that more people should consider is like, we're living in a world that has a sort of overlay, a matrix, a cultural matrix of yeah. understanding. And to dive past that, to look past that veil, you see what's real. You see the natural law and you know, the seven hermetic laws are, are something that have stood the test of time because they record things that are just so potent and true. Yeah. And so, I mean, I mean, true, like superior virtue, the, pr the principle of Wu Wei, right? Do you know this? I've talked about it with you guys, I think. Um, oh, not off the top of my my head. Did we talk about it on Idiocalypse that time? Maybe the... just briefly, but the Tao, right? Okay. I think Wu Wei is actually, you could get almost all of the Tao just from this principle. And it's there's various translations, but the one 
I prefer is the one that basically says that inferior virtue is, virtue is overly concerned with virtuosity, which is like a declaration of your virtue, right? Like virtue for virtue's sake. Yeah. And so therefore is not virtuous and superior virtue doesn't ever give a thought to being virtuous. And so therefore is virtuous. And so what I'm getting at is that that actually true good doesn't have a counterpart because in nature there is no evil. <laughs> it you just know? is. Yeah. Yeah. And so this whole idea of good and evil is a false dichotomy is a right. construct that runs and so instead of natural rhythm we get this like you were saying this matrix rhythm placed on top of nature that is unnatural and it's hypnotic it's like we see all the people that are like you know rule followers right now are literally paving the way to hell right yes the good <laughs> <laughs> right the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And we always used to think that the ends justify the means, which it kind of works in this case, but really it's more like, I want to be good, but you've been tricked <laughs> and you're doing something that is fucking really wrong, you know? Yeah. yeah. And everything about our culture, you take a look at any part of it. There's an inherent division at play in most things, you know, and people play on that the sides you know it's obviously in politics but sports is you know fundamental to our culture and it's all about two groups you know challenging each other and going head to head and i'm not talking down on sports i was the captain of my wrestling team i really you know believe in what that did for me but at the same time i realized that i grew up in a society that kind of framed my psychology in a certain way and now we have to unpack that and that's called self-improvement you got to buy a bunch <laughs> yeah. of books and all this stuff and it's like what's really going on is like the people who control the world and now we're getting into conspiracy folks the people who control the world want you to be in that weekend unenlightened unappreciative ungrateful state because that's like you know how you shut yourself off from this connection to everything in nature that will teach you how to be because nature has the the way inherent to it you know that's kind of like the whole meaning of Tao is the way the way to go and then what does that you know entail well it entails taking a look at the things around you and learning to sort of you know I, now I feel like I lost it but Birch you said it You've said it today. I mean, people can hit the rewind if they didn't get it by now. Cause I mean, this episode is, is been really cool. I love how we, we brought Buckminster Fuller out from the, the shadows. And I think that's something you're doing with your work. It's definitely uh, sacred geometrical in nature, right? That's something you talk about. Yeah. And, and that's part of what you do for your work. I mean, you're an, a designer, you know, it's, very cool to meet someone uh, in your position. Jay, do you have any questions before we wrap this one up here? I mean, this has been a lot of uh, new information for you, I'm sure. Yes, everything has been very new to me. That's why I haven't talked much. It kind of, kind of confusing in a way, I will admit. I think, I think the stuff that confused me is when we were getting into like the maps you were showing us. I think uh, that's, that's the, really 
confused me, I think, the most. The Dimaxian map wasn't obvious and approachable to you, Jay? What are you talking about? <laughs> the, the audio clips are great to hear him uh, yeah. in his own words. Well, that, well, I don't think that was his voice. I think that was a narrator, Jay. He's actually, he's well, got yeah, a New, New England accent. Though, you know, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't heard of his books or anything, so. He was from New England? Yeah. Wow. Okay. We're in New England. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah. He's from Mass. Okay. Yeah. And the transcendentalist movement, that's something we should dive into further on a future episode. Cause yeah. I'd be I curious I learning to... about that in high school. Oh, yeah, yeah. Me too. Emerson and fucking. Uh, yeah. I love, that was my favorite part of high school. Thoreau. Class. <laughs> okay. So I mean, since you mentioned that, that's what kind of where this all kind of sparked. Like this, some of these people's writings like made me really think, you know, really yeah. think back when I was like 14 and 15. Yeah. yeah absolutely well for folks who are interested we are doing a new thing on our youtube that kind of relates to what you just mentioned i'm not trying to plug here but i i read uh rudolf steiner a, a part of a chapter from his book and then i read another chapter from a book by neville drury but i'm gonna buy a buckminster fuller book and make that a part of it and then maybe find some more probably do a ralph waldo emerson book and dive into all that a little further on our YouTube channel. But Birch, this has been really fun, man. I mean, what what can you say? Where are the listeners going to go next to find more Birch Driver? I think, so I had this idea that I mentioned to you guys on New Year. All right. Exciting. Let's hear it. The the anti-coin. Yeah, yeah. And so it's representative that you are the value and that the measurement device is not the value. And so you get this anti-coin and on it, it says who you are, basically a divine being with with soul dominion over your body, right? And it describes the rights on the other side too, that you have freedom of association and freedom of exchange, you know? So it's basically you hold this coin and when you have it, you know who you are, right? If you get it, you know who you are. You don't need it to know who you are, but basically it's like you can have it and show it to people and be like, wow, it definitely sparks some thinking for sure. And so I have that offering basically at the, at my website and the store, I designed this coin in SolidWorks and I, I'm investment casting it right now. So it's like expensive, but if we can get it going, the idea is, is to basically inject ink into the analog exchange that people have, right? Not the matrix exchange, not the death exchange, right? But the actual real exchange of livingry, which is what Bucky talks about, which is like this, everything you do is in support of life, right? This is livingry instead of weaponry, right? It's a word that Bucky made up, livingry. So if we devote all of our energy into to making livingry, then our lives will be a lot better, <laughs> you know? Wow. Uh, but so, but the point is, is like the network, right? We, they have control of our network, which is us, right? This is how we live, right? Exchange of value between people is how we survive, right? So we need to take our network back. And the idea is, is that we inject the anti-coin into the analog network into the veins of it so that we can see it. And when it's time, everyone jumps ship from the death network to the living network, right? (laughs) (laughs) This is how we, this is how we throw a spanner in their works, man. This is how, I think this is how we could do it. So we get everyone, it's like we basically hold our hand ch- close to our chest. We're not going to fucking play our cards yet, right? But when it's time, bam, we all fucking discharge our debt and we just fucking start rocking on the living network instead of the death network. And that's what the coin represents, the anti-coin. It's the anti-coin, right? It's made out of silver. So go check it out on the website. 
Wow. See what you that's, think. that's profound. Yeah. I love that. I mean, little knowledge, a background about me. I make these, I used to make them a lot more, but I make these little wire wraps. So it's, yeah, I'll show you, get it, I'll get it closer, but you know, wire wrapping is just like something I kind of intuitively did. And then after a time, like I started like dreaming about different shapes that I would make. And it really, I mean, it, it kind of gave a little fire to learn more about sacred geometry. And then I tried to like take the wires and work them and life happens. And I fell out of doing it as often as I used to, but it's, yeah, it's something that I would encourage everyone to do is go find like it doesn't have to be wire wrapping. It doesn't have to be, you know, making a coin. That sounds like that's pretty freaking awesome. I wouldn't even know how to begin there. I want you guys to get it, get it, or I'll send you one. I'll send you one. I would, Birch, I would love that. This has been really fun, folks. Please go check out Birch Driver and get yourself an anti-coin because that's the future. Get off the death matrix and into the living, Exchange, natural yeah. Yeah, the living exchange. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Well, hey, listeners, thanks for listening to the My Family Think Some Crazy podcast and have a beautiful day. Mark is bananas. Crazy. Okay, this guy's losing his mind. I Don't listen crazy to him. for feeling so lonely. Follow us on Patreon.com slash M-F-T-I-C. That's Patreon.com slash M-F-T-I-C. Oh,